0: Last year, in May of 2020, as the pandemic was building to its terrible intensity, so was hunger all across America. One of the most impressive first responders was our partner, Feeding America. We asked their CEO, Claire Babinot fontenot to join us on Ad Passion and Stir. At the time, Feeding America food banks experienced an increase in demand of 55%. Four out of every 10 people seeking that assistance had never needed help before. Now, finally, a year later, the need, while still great, is decreasing. In fact, Politico reported in May that hunger rates plummet after two rounds of stimulus. Their lead was that the percentage of Americans struggling with hunger is now at its lowest level since the pandemic began, suggesting that the recent flood in aid from Washington is making a significant difference to families struggling economically. That's good news. And I wanna share an inspiring update I just received from Feeding America's Director of Communications, Zawani Villarreal. Zwani confirmed that Feeding America's experience aligns with the decreases in demand that Politico reported. And she talked to me about how food banks have evolved. Many food banks across the country have innovated with technology to pilot different ways to reach people. New partnerships were formed between food banks and schools. Most important, perhaps, Feeding America's focus expanded from feeding the line to shortening it, not just addressing food insecurity, but family financial insecurity as well. And with increased focus on equity, Feeding America is funding more and different community organizations to ensure that more perspectives are at the table. Share our strengths experience has been similar with many of our stakeholders urging us to not only continue to help feed kids and families, but to help empower and strengthen them so that they're not facing hunger in the first place. Our work advocating for the new child tax credit and ensuring that families with kids can access it will be one example of how we do that. Feeding America and Share Our Strength are committed to making permanent the many flexibilities, waivers, and innovations that enabled us to feed families more efficiently and effectively. When we spoke last May with Feeding America CEO, Claire babinot fontanet here's what she told us.
1: There are lots of opportunities in this pandemic to come out of it better than we were going into it.
0: Because Claire's foresight was so compelling, We're re-releasing our conversation with her, and we think you'll find that it continues to offer an excellent framework for how we can end hunger in America. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir, our weekly conversation about food, passion, and making a difference in the world, especially in the time now of coronavirus. And we've got a guest today who is on the front line of that response maybe the busiest woman in America right now. It's Claire Babineau-Fontenot. She is the CEO of Feeding America. It's a network of 200 food banks. You've heard about Feeding America uh, these last eight weeks, if not the last many years, but particularly as all of us have seen, long lines on TV news, lines of folks lined up at food banks, cars sometimes uh, miles long, Uh These are people in our country today who need help. Many of them, I'm told, maybe as many as 40% of them for the first time. Uh, There's no organization that has stitched together a more important safety net for hungry Americans than Feeding America. So we're really, really thrilled to have you with us, Claire. Thanks for taking the time.
1: Well, thank you, Billy. And uh, if there are uh, among your listeners, uh, those who have not heard of Feeding America, I want them to know that Feeding America certainly heard of you. Um, in good times and, and in challenging ones, you have been remarkably important partners in this work on the front lines of advocacy, but also providing really meaningful grants to some of our member food banks along the way. So when I was given the opportunity to participate, I jumped at the chance. Uh, It's a rare privilege to get to say thank you uh, to all of you.
0: Well, thanks. And um, I want folks to understand number of different things about you, about your path, about what Feeding America looked like before uh, this coronavirus catastrophe, what it looks like now. But uh, mostly I want to start by just getting your sense of uh, what does hunger in America look like today? I think you took this job, I was going to say maybe a year, 18 months ago. Is it even that long, Claire?
1: Yeah, it's October of 2018.
0: Okay. So coming up on, uh, you know, maybe 18 months, I can't believe that you could have imagined when you took the job that you'd ever face uh, a moment like this. Tell us what you're seeing, what you're hearing from your colleagues in the field about who's hungry right now, what they need.
1: Yes. So let me actually go back, if you will, in time to that moment when I joined. We'd gotten data, the most recent data available from uh, the USDA that I got to look at shared that the food insecurity rates in the United States were at 37 million people. We were serving about 40 million people a year at that time. And I I looked with a lot of interest at that number and it was an unacceptable truth. There would be 37 million, 40 million people. So many of them would be children in the richest country in the history of civilization who did not have consistent access to a nutritious mix of food.
0: That that would be the definition of food insecurity, right?
1: That would be the definition of food insecurity.
0: Okay. Exactly.
1: So there are there are all these people and I wanted to be a part of doing something about that. And I learned in that data that that was the first time in 10 years that we would returned to pre-recession rates of food insecurity. So that that 37 million was a marked improvement, was something that was hard for me to even fathom. Um, now, today, we have um, internally done some analysis that shows that based upon what we can see and the need that we're attempting to address, that we we believe that food insecurity rates are going to um, To grow by at least 17 million uh, over the course of this pandemic. And based upon old data, uh, if the last uh, financial crisis is any indication, and we have reason to believe this one is worse, that it won't peak for two years and it'll take at least 10 years to get back, that's simply not acceptable to me. And I don't believe it's acceptable to any one of your listeners. And I know it's not acceptable to you, Billy, either. what we're seeing right now on the ground, uh, we're seeing some of our at some of our distributions, uh, ten thousand families lining up for food. Um, overall, across our network, our last data set uh, shows a seventy percent overall increase in need. Um, that is overall. There are certain food banks uh, that are, are and certain geographies that are seeing a 200% increase in need. It, it's just been unprecedented.
0: Um, and that's going to mean that there's many people for the first time um, going for help that, you know, people who have right. never had to navigate our emergency food system before.
1: It's true. And, and if you, in fact, you mentioned, uh, and you're, you're always um, so well-rooted in data, Billy, you were correct in saying Um, that we're looking, we, our spike so far has been, the rate has been about 40% of the people who are coming to us today, um, have never turned to the charitable food system for help before. So I I think people look at those cars, for instance, if you look at the parking lot with the 10,000 cars in San Antonio, that is now rather infamous as emblematic of the struggle. You, you look and you look at those cars and you see that some of those cars, are really economical cars. Some of them seem old and tattered. Some of them are somewhere in the middle. And then some others of them look like rather nice cars. And you said, well, why on earth would people, would that array of people be out there trying to get food? That's what's happening that's different, is there are so many people who are, who are showing up um, in need who just never imagined they would be who were trotting along with every reason to believe that they were going to be able to support themselves and their families for the long term. And then there they are in a situation where they don't have enough food and they're having to turn to us for help. So um, it is unprecedented what we're seeing. The diverse mix of people who find themselves in need and turn to us is something we've never seen anything like it before.
0: You know, we're recording this conversation clear on May seventh, and we found out this morning that three point two million more Americans filed for unemployment. So it's a total of thirty three point five million Americans who have filed for unemployment. Um, when you say it could take ten years to recover, uh, I could see that actually being the case. This is a this is an, a colossal number. Of people without jobs, and there have been quite a few stories in this past week about many companies that uh, thought they were or hoped that they were temporarily furloughing staff have now made those layoffs permanent layoffs. So, um, so what's the so? Thank goodness, feeding America is there. I was going to ask you what the uh, alternative is and how we'll get people to the point where they don't need this assistance. But first, I thought it would be good for some folks to just understand exactly how Feeding America works. I always think of it as kind of like this giant uh, sequoia redwood tree with many branches that you know reach many places uh, in terms of all of the hundreds of uh, soup kitchens and food pantries and other agencies that each of your food banks, supplies, uh, what's the best, I'm sure you can describe it a lot better than I can. Um, let, let's help people understand how does Feeding America actually work?
1: Yeah, no, I think that was actually a good, a good way to visualize it. So, um, we have, we are a network of 200 food banks, um, at, in, in the office that I serve in, um, is the we refer to it as FANO, Feeding America National Office. We have two main offices. One is in Chicago, Illinois, the other is in DC, in the DC office, as you might imagine. We have quite a few people who focus their energy on policy and advocacy work. Um, the, the larger part of our of our workforce, uh, national office workforce is in is in Chicago. And then we have people as part of the Feeding America National Office team who actually are remote and work throughout the United States. So you have that national office, and then you have a federated association of members. Each is a discrete 501c3. Um, Each has a board of directors, um, and each has some independence in how it is that they get the work done. What helps to connect us is a common mission of no one being hungry in this country. All of our food banks provide food, house and provide food. Um, Some of them in normal times have some form of direct distribution, but inordinately, the typical form of, of of distribution to the public would be through agency partners. And there we have in normal times, sixty thousand over sixty thousand agency partners around the United States. So it could be a meal program where we provide the food for an after-school meal program um, in in concert with an organization like No Kid Hungry, or it could be a pantry that's in the basement of a church, or it could be a large um, distribution center that looks a lot like a food bank itself. So. We have a myriad of distribution channels that go directly to people facing hunger. Um, where we focus, most of the focus in, in this work of late has been around the, the uh, distribution of food component of our work, but we do have other pillars to the work that we do. So we often refer to it as one, one aspect of our work, and they certainly work together. But we have the feeding the line work, Um, Part of that is an an increased emphasis on food as medicine and providing people with a nutritious mix of food. And then the other part of our work is sharpening the line work. And the sharpening the line work uh, includes some programmatic changes and implementations that we do. Um, inside of local communities designed to help people to be elevated out of food insecurities.
0: So they won't need to be in that line in the first place is the goal.
1: Exactly, exactly. I have no aspiration of only doing a really good job of feeding an increasingly long line. My aspiration is that everyone who can uh, be able to provide for his or her self, and his or her family.
0: So, how has it changed uh, just in the la- in the last eight weeks? I mean, in addition to the demand, which has gone up so greatly, um, how is, just how has life changed for you for Claire? <laughs> What's been different? I imagine it's been almost twenty four seven.
1: Well, uh, it's been a yeah a really big difference for me has been working from home. Uh, we've always had a, a number of people who work from home and work remotely, I thought I understood what that meant. I did not. Um, I had never really meaningfully worked from home. I thought, oh, sure, you know, I took my laptop home and worked um, on a particular project. It's not the same. So I have such an an enhanced appreciation for what it means to work from home. Um, It has caused me to rethink some of my firmly held beliefs about whom it is that needs, quote unquote, needs to be in the office um, and who, and why is it that I thought they needed to be in the office? We, uh, our, our network as a whole has risen to this occasion in ways that make me so terribly proud And so much of it is being done remotely. So it's changed the whole way that I'm looking at it. So we're going back and scrubbing some of our policies and and checking for these biases that we had embedded in there based upon what we thought we knew but didn't know. In terms of myself, um, I did have a bit of a hard and fast rule. I only occasionally brought my laptop home. So as a rule, my laptop stayed at my office. And I came in early and I worked late. But I had this clear line of demarcation. I was going to work. I didn't work from home. I worked from office. So I'd walk and do whatever I needed to do to work from my office. Um, I started developing a pattern because there's so much need is so obvious and palpable. Um, I started a pattern of not really sleeping very much, and I was working from everywhere. Right, working from my bedroom, from the back porch, from the den, from the kitchen. Um, and and it's not a sustainable model. So that and, and that is and there are so many people in our network who are doing more than I'm doing. So um, it really shed a light on on how it can be hard to turn things off. But that I need to turn it off and I need to do it out loud so that I can make room for other people on my team to do the same. So, we're trying to come into a more sustainable model inside of our offices, if you will, those of us who are not directly on the front line. And then, in terms of the way the work has changed for our, our members, um, oh my goodness, the, they're accustomed to being able to anticipate how many people are going to show up in need of food. They're accustomed. To being able to deliver that food in a highly efficient way, um, they now have to over-index, as they well should. They have to around safety in the distribution model. So they've complete; it's completely uh, changed our distribution model. People used to come into uh, into a, pl- a pantry; they line up very close together. They'd receive the food. That is not a model that's appropriate uh, during a pandemic like this one. So we've shifted to more centralized distributions, more distributions coming from the bank, food banks themselves. And then your the listeners may have seen some of these images where people are taking food and loading it into people's trunks so that there can be lower contact distributions. So that's changed. Um, the fact that now we have food banks who have to turn people away. Our food banks and our pantries have, are known for finding a way to at least have someone leave with something, even if they couldn't leave with everything. in in a In a highly regulated environment, which, in your your listeners probably are aware of, some of the requirements you know about congregate feeding and all of those types of regulations that we've had to just really just flip, throw away the playbook, really, and and reinvent a new one. Um, for the times, well, those ways of working were deeply entrenched ways of working for us. And we're having to rethink um, all of it and trying to do it in a way that also part of my responsibility, I think, is not just to model things for myself, um, but to be a part of modeling it for Feeding America National Office, and then to make room for our CEOs who are right there in those local communities and who can't sleep if people can't eat. trying to find ways to make room for them to be able to get some rest. (laughs) So uh, it's been highly disruptive, uh, highly disruptive.
0: We'll be right back with Claire Babineau-Fontanat in just a moment. We are so grateful for our partnership with the Chrysler brand and the amazing support they've shown us during the COVID-19 pandemic. Chrysler helped to raise over $3.5 million to benefit the work of No Kid Hungry. And they did it through event sponsorships and their promotion of donating $50 for every Chrysler Pacifica sold. It's amazing what we continue to do with partners like Chrysler. To learn more about Chrysler and to receive a gift voucher towards a new Chrysler Pacifica, visit Chrysler and well, you know, our, our model has also been uh, turned on its head in ways that you would appreciate. And it, uh, it it's probably giving us a little bit more insight into your world, uh, the, the No Kid Hungry campaign of Share Strength for the last 10 years has been really focused on uh, ensuring that kids who are eligible for uh, federal nutritional assistance were getting it. So kids who you know uh, were eligible for participating in school breakfast but weren't participating, we've worked very hard to add millions of kids to that program because they need it, but there were logistical or bureaucratic barriers to them participating summer meals as you know is you know very very uh suboptimized in terms of the number of kids who are eligible but uh, participating so we but we fundamentally we have focused on schools and and within schools particularly breakfast and a little bit of after school now and 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 when you were talking about congregate feeding the rule that you know uh, says kids have to be together to be fed um, some of these regulations got waived in some of the early legislation. But still, schools are supposed to get reimbursed for feeding kids. And as you know, they're now feeding everybody. Uh, Kids aren't going to school. Schools aren't open. A lot of schools have grab-and-go sites and have found ways to replace school meals, maybe through their bus drivers or other ways. But it's the parents who are picking it up and the parents who need it as badly as the kids. So schools are becoming, to some degree, food hubs and having to make it up as they go, uh, a you know kind of a, a small supplement to a food bank network. But there was kind of this fiction early on that uh, w- we were going to only feed kids at the schools, and you know, same kind of thing. Cars are lining up long, long lines, uh, and families are taking that food home. And they're now allowed to take more than one school meal home at a time. Uh, but they're taking it home, and I hope that. Everyone's eating it because everybody needs it. So it's kind of a, you know, completely different world. Um, And uh, as uh, hopefully it doesn't go on too long, but as it does, um, we'll obviously aim to coordinate more and better with you um, and to learn some of the things that your network already knows.
1: That sounds wonderful. And it's, it's one of the, the, the things I think um, it's interesting in terms of public sentiment pre COVID There, I call it, I'm sure there's a a better scientific term that's been coined for this phenomenon. But as I looked at data on public perception around hunger, I was surprised by some of the things that I learned, like learning that it was equally likely that someone who self identifies as a Republican and someone who self identifies as a Democrat conservative or progressive, however it is that they might self-identify, that there was some deeply held um, misperceptions about whom it is that receives, for instance, SNAP, um, or whom it is that turns to us for help. And um, but the one thing that all the data has shown for a very long time is that at least people can agree um, that children shouldn't be hungry. That children should not have to look uh, to find their own sources of food and sustenance. At least people could agree on that. Um, one of the things that's been elusive in that construct is the fact that a food insecure child lives inside of a food insecure household, and that um, I think it's important for there to be partners like like uh, uh, share our strengths, and I think it's important for those partners to focus energy. In the ways that you always have, um, because children, when they're be there, be schools open or not, we've got to make sure that that there is, in fact, no kid hungry in this country. Um, and it's not, but it's not either. It's not, our, and um, we also need to be addressing some of those systemic issues that are are causing that child to live inside of a food insecure household. So one of the most positive developments for me, uh, coming out of this terrible, terrible pandemic has been that, what you just mentioned that, that people are coming to schools and they're not saying now this food is only for that kid, right? We want the kid to get fed, but you have four kids. Uh, so the parent is going to only give food to the one kid who went to that school. You know, so it's, 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 um, I I I think I I I've, I was told I will share with you and I've learned that it's not in fact true, but I've been told many years ago that the Mandarin symbol for crisis was a combination of two symbols: one representing danger, the other representing opportunity. And then I actually got to know people who know Mandarin who said, actually, that's not what that means. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> that's however, <laughs> that's a that's not no, but. But the, 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 the premise, though, is so true that I, and I, ever since I, I learned that the wrong way, <laughs> I started looking for opportunity in crisis and it caused me to just, to, to change my view. So I'd ask, okay, so this is a terrible situation to be sure. Um, where is that kernel? What can we do? How can we make? And I also have another way of saying it. I like my pain to pay, right? There are lots of opportunities in this pandemic to come out of it better than we were going into it.
0: You know, one of the very first things you told me when we when we first met, um, I think we sat down at the in the lobby of the Capitol Hilton Hotel or somewhere near there in D.C. Um, yes,
1: I remember it well.
0: And, and, you know, both of our organizations not only work a lot on policy, but I would say collaborate really beautifully together on policy issues like access to SNAP and things like that. And you had access to some really interesting data uh, that if if I remember it correctly, you were saying that uh, the data shows that many of the same people who are very supportive of individuals needing to be um, receive food assistance from Uh, food banks or local pantries, uh, that the same people are not supportive necessarily of, of those same individuals receiving food assistance from SNAP or from other type of government supports. Did I, did I get that fundamentally right?
1: That is, that is correct. As usual, you are spot on. That was among the things as I was, when I met you that day, I already knew you by reputation, but uh, having a chance to sit with you and Tom that day. And there were all of these things that would just, there were all of these inconsistencies going around inside my head. And I was trying to make sense of things. And the only difference today, uh, Billy, is that I've just come to realize it just doesn't make sense, right? The reason reason I couldn't make sense of it is it doesn't make sense. But I can be a part of a movement um, that gets to something that makes sense. Uh, but where we are now, where we were then, it just didn't, but the level of empathy that we're seeing Billy, uh, if I may, um, it has been really positive, the level of empathy. I think, uh, as we continue to be a hyper-partisan country and we're even finding ways to make science and medical advice, partisan and all of that stuff. Um, which i consider i would call it background noise if it if it didn't have the the potential to 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 be so harmful um to our abilities to make progress but so i have to pay attention to it unfortunately but what uh what i am hearing in the data and it's it's harder to get access to data right now because we have this emphasis on on safety and 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 on this remarkable acute need. But what I am hearing at least uh, anecdotally from the data would be so many people who ad- agree that um, the people who have lost their jobs in this pandemic are not at fault. And that those people who are now looking for ways to feed their family, of course, they're trying to find ways to feed their family. So I'm hopeful that, that can translate into and now let's let's revisit um, this whole notion of snap and and let's look at it and say do you really want them lined up over there do you really want those cars in their parking lot do you really want four mile long lines or would you prefer as I do to provide people with the dignity of the ability to have um, help from the federal government um, where they can go into a grocery store, just like the rest of us get to have that dignity. They can go into a grocery store and they can, they can purchase food to feed themselves and to feed their families um, and get that leg up that they need in order to sustain them so that they can then one day be back in a position of being able to contribute. We have a number of donors, former donors who are now in the line um, trying to receive food from us. Uh, We've seen the reverse before where we had people who needed our assistance and then they dedicated themselves to being volunteers. We have in normal times with 2 million volunteers, a lot of those volunteers are people who would turn to us for help, who were able to raise themselves out of food insecurity, and then who didn't forget about what that meant to them. And they came, they come back to help. Now we're seeing the reverse, which is tragic uh, to witness. So I do think at this moment in time, though, Billy, I'm, I'm really, I, I've laughed with someone recently. Um, I was on a call with another partner and I said, you know, there's a difference between a cockeyed optimist and a, and a clear-eyed optimist. I consider myself uh, the, the latter. Um, there's a real opportunity here. There are opportunities here. Our responsibility is to see them and then to do something with them.
0: You know, and not only does the uh, kind of strategy that you just described and uh, give people the dignity, but it also gives the local economy an infusion of dollars so that grocery stores and others that obviously desperately need uh, funds at a time like this uh, are getting it. So it's a, it's kind of a win-win. It really is. And I agree, it creates the opportunity if we can convert this empathy into um, folks not just seeing the person in front of them or the person on TV in line, but seeing the potential for policy to reach a much larger number than any of us could ever reach uh, individually or, or through the private or the nonprofit sector, uh, then we could, you know, we could really get to a different place in this country, which would be uh, Mike you know, it, it wouldn't make all this worth it because the pain's been too great, but it might be at least something good that comes out of it. I
1: agree. And, and may I add just two quick points on that, which are you are spot on. Again, um, one data point that we have is that for every one meal we provide, um, the Federal Nutrition Program can provide nine. Right. So if you it, it just makes sense, it's logical that you would want to use the more efficient way. Um, But the other one, to the other point that you make, if you are fiscally conservative, let's say you're fiscally conservative, then you should definitely want um, uh, to increase access to SNAP. Because if you just really think about the stimulative impact that it has on the economy, and this is data-driven information. I used to be the executive vice president of finance at Walmart. I emphasize that to people so that they can understand I am a really data-driven person, right? Um, it's uncontroverted that if you give resources to people who must must, out of necessity use those resources, it will stimulate the economy. If you give resources to people who have discretion over when, how, and where they use those resources, it will not be as stimulative to the economy. So there's so many good reasons uh, to be doing this work together. And I can't think of any constituency that's not well served by um, doubling down on this work. And Feeding America is definitely gonna double down on it.
0: Well, I'm glad that you not only explained that, but that you mentioned your time at Walmart as a vice president there focused on finance, because uh, although almost everybody knows Feeding America, probably not everybody knows how you got to become CEO. Mm. Tell mm-hmm. us that story.
1: Well, it, it, I think I'm going to try to think about how I give you the condensed version. So it goes all the way back. I was born in and you're like, Oh my goodness, we don't have enough time for all of this, Claire, but it does really start with my family story. And then, but I will try to give you uh, a spit, a sped up version. So, I am very unique, I learned, though I didn't think it was so. It's all that I ever knew in that um, I am one of 108 children through birth, adoption, and foster care uh, that, that um, called my mom and dad mom and dad. My parents are in the National Adoption Hall of Fame. I, am, I have known my whole life that hunger is here in America. Um, we didn't have, my, my parents did not have to talk it when we were picky eaters. They didn't have to say, oh, they're hungry children in Africa and China. Cause we knew because so many of us had come from neglect and abuse and, and from food insecurity. Um, so I've always known. I've always known about, as long as I can remember, at least about feeding America, though it was at the time called America's second harvest. Because my parents, as you might imagine, people who have that kind of capacity to have to be mom and dad to 108, they know everybody in the community. And when when America's Second Harvest at the time would come around to try to find families in need, they'd come to our house. So we were like a little distribution hub for our community for for feeding America. And we would we'd have People from the community who we knew were in need to come over to our house and Second Harvest would come to our house with food and would do distributions to people. So I had an awareness of both of those. But I am, I'm the granddaughter of sharecroppers. Neither of my parents graduated from high school and I had these remarkable opportunities. So I had a chance to graduate from high school. I had a chance to graduate from college. I had an opportunity to go to law school. And then to my mother's complete, um, I don't know, she was, she was not amused by the fact that there was a thing called an LLM because she thought, what was wrong with my first law degree? But I had a chance to go get another. So as I avail myself of these opportunities, always in the background was an understanding that there was a lot of need in the world. I worked, I served on nonprofit boards for a long time in different capacities. Um, so I became a lawyer. I became a tax lawyer in particular. Walmart became my client. I um, had the opportunity to go in house and become and work on the tax team. I became the chief tax officer. I Then I kept moving up by ultimately culminating in becoming the treasurer and the executive vice president of finance. Um, I was on the foundation board at Walmart. I got to know Feeding America again in a different kind of way when I was there, when Walmart made the decision to make meaningful, really, really deep investments in our work, in Feeding America's work. I got to be a part of that decision-making. Um, I was at Walmart during Katrina, and it was Katrina that helped us to understand, uh, help Walmart to understand the impact that it could make through Feeding America and its work. So... And then in 2015, Billy, I don't know if you wanted me to go there, but you know I'm an open book. In 2015, I learned that I had cancer. And everything changed. No longer could I ignore how finite I was. Because I had it in my mind, one of these days, one of these days, I'm going to do nonprofit work full time. One of these days, but I've got plenty of time. Good news is, My prognosis was great from the beginning. I'm so privileged. I had access to wonderful medical care, but I was changed forever on the inside as a result of that. Um, I'm five years now. uh, I have survived for five years. My prognosis got even better upon meeting that milestone, which is why rather than being in Chicago right now, I'm in Dallas because my physicians, my oncologists, my oncological team is in Dallas and I came in for a, a visit and then they cl- started closing down states. So I just stayed here. Um, but um, so I decided I would, I asked myself a question. It was, what if the last thing that I ever did professionally were the last thing that I could do at Walmart? Is that okay? My answer clearly was no. So I started leaving Walmart. I transitioned for a while. <laughs> I had to convince Doug that, yes, I, I am actually going to leave. He was the new CEO at the time when I went and talked to him. And we we worked through a lengthy transition plan. And then I left. And I didn't know I was going to come to Feeding America, per se. But I knew that I was going to spend the rest of my life working in the nonprofit space, um, trying to do Well, good.
0: Claire, I knew... Um- I'm, I'm kind of glad your path uh, took you where it did and that we get to work together now. I knew a little bit of your um, family and growing up story, um, but I know that my our producer, Woody, who we were talking to earlier, didn't. And uh, he won't let us off the phone for another hour unless you <laughs> promise to, to come back on uh add passion and stir another time. I, I'm sure when you said that you were one of 108, I know that his, his head just spun off his shoulders and dropped his pocket <laughs> all, over the, all over the soundboard. Um, so we're, we're going to have to dig into that uh, more. But, you know, obviously, uh, I mean, that is a that is a unique story, but our lives are so formative and are the role our parents play. And, uh, you know, and you, I guess you have to get to a certain point in life before you can look back and see how, Everything fit together in the sense it made in terms of who you turned out to be, but um, but it takes you know it takes some time and some wisdom and some getting through it before uh, you can make sense of it all and just see how influential and transformative uh, it was. Uh, let me ask you as we wrap up here. I, th- I feel like the response we've seen uh, at Share Strength and with the, the No Kid Hungry campaign, the response you've seen at Feeding America tens of thousands of donors reaching out to us. I mean, we've, we've never had a period like this where we weren't having to go out and try to convince people that their fellow Americans were hungry and struggling. Uh, people now know that. We're not pushing uh, or advocating a, uh, a narrative around that. People are coming to us, and I know that they're coming to you how can our listeners help? Um, We know that folks can write a check, and I think that's frankly one of the most important things right now, particularly with social distancing and all the complications that come from volunteering. Uh, Although even with that, we've probably both seen a lot of folks who say, I I want to find a safe way to be on the front lines and help. But not just during this COVID-19 crisis, but in the longer term, uh, how can... I always feel like the issue of hunger is one on which everybody can make a difference, um, that it lends itself to everybody being involved. How do you typically um, advise people that they can make a difference on this issue?
1: Yeah. Well, I think um, I, I, I tend to refer to it as uh, we need funds, uh, food, and friends. So the funds part you just talked about like you, the outpouring of support is unprecedented, but so is the need. Uh, our own study—we're uh, about to update for mid and long-term analysis, but our short-term analysis was that over the first six months, that the gap for the charitable food system for our network was one point four billion dollars. So when people hear about substantial, you know, significant gifts, which we are so grateful for, um, I must tell you that I am also grateful for small gifts too. Um, I'm grateful for every investment people make in people facing hunger. I truly am. Um, But when they see those gifts, maybe they think, oh, well, then you have everything that you need from the funds perspective. But the answer is no, no, we don't. Um, So, we are working to close that gap. We're making progress in closing that gap, but it's not completely closed. And if this lingers as, and we're going to work with you guys to make sure it doesn't linger for ten years, well, we certainly don't have the financial uh, resources that we need for a ten-year fight. Uh, certainly not that. So, um, so there's there are funds. We have we started a COVID nineteen fund. Uh, and we were able, and I know not every nonprofit would be able to do this, but we were able to commit 100% of the funding that goes into that COVID-19 fund goes back into local communities 100%. Feeding America does not take any any percentage of it for general um, general fund for us. And of course it costs money for us to operate, but we take no money out of it. Um, So we send that money into local communities based upon our analysis of where the key needs are. Another place that people can provide funding, though, is by going to feedingamerica.org. You can go to COVID-19 and donate to the national fund and uh, where you're authorizing us to be good stewards of that funding and send it to where it's needed the most. You can also go in, and we have a food bank locator on feedingamerica.org, and you can find the communities that you care the most about. And you can go into that and then figure out, um, go directly. It'll give you, if you put in a in a, a zip code, it'll send you to, it'll tell you this is the food bank that serves that community. And then you can go to that website and find out what do they need? Do they need food? Um, do they need, don't do they need volunteers uh, to come and help and and to what degree do they need funding as well? So that's something else I would strongly encourage people to do. One of the things I think makes that makes our organizations like ours unique is that you get a chance to have a national impact as well as a local one in this work. So I encourage people to go to beatingamerica.org and pursue those possibilities. But then on the friend side, I don't think about the friend side exclusively as a question of. Uh, donating time, uh, volunteer time inside of food banks, for instance. Um, I think we have a responsibility to be well-informed about what, um, the people who represent us that we elect where they stand on issues like hunger. Um, and I think we have a responsibility to help them to understand where we stand. So using our voices, uh, to reach out to members of Congress and to help and local, um, members of the government to help them with a clear eye to understand what we expect of those who represent us and how, how we expect them to, um, to stick with people facing hunger. Uh, Because the one thing that I know, I talked before about the fact that everybody can agree that children should not be responsible for finding food for themselves. One thing I've learned about politicians, they care deeply about what voters think. So recognizing how empowered each of us is as a voter um, and using our voice and our hands and et cetera um, to make certain that those who represent us truly represent us.
0: Yeah, and not everybody um, has the uh, an equal voice. So sometimes our voices, I mean, everybody should have an equal voice. But um, sometimes our voices, our vote, um, you know, particularly, again, when it comes to kids who can't vote and don't make campaign contributions and don't have lobbyists, um, we need to be the voice and the vote for them. So um, thanks for explaining the best way to do that. FeedingAmerica.org. Lots of important information there and a really great and powerful and effective way to donate uh, dollars, large or small. They make an enormous difference, given the number of Americans that we're all trying to feed right now. Um, I'm so grateful that you took the time to join us. I feel like, given the task ahead, we should let you go and get back to <laughs> your day job. Uh, but we've really been um, really been grateful to have Claire Bevano Fontano with us, uh, CEO of Feeding America since October of 2018, and now leading uh, the largest effort in the country to make sure that. Uh, Americans who are hungry and out of work uh, are going to be fed during and after this COVID-19 crisis. So Claire, thanks for the really heroic leadership uh, that I know not just speaks to you, but to the entire team and the entire network uh, that you lead. And we're just all so grateful for the work you're doing. Wow!
1: And because of that long-term partnership that I referenced at the very beginning, I want to go back and say, That if you take any pride in or if you notice anything that we're doing that you consider admirable, I hope that you also um, reflect on the fact that we do that uh, so much of this work in partnership with you and your organization. Uh, So thank you for everything you do. Thank you for the partnership.
0: Well, thanks. It's a great partnership. Uh, many people on the outside probably look at us and think, well, don't you two organizations compete? And I would say, you know, we might con- compete about 1% of the time if we both end up in someone's office together, but 99% of the time, uh, our teams in particular are working so closely together and sharing so much information. And uh, there, frankly, there could be five Feeding Americas and five No Kid Hungry campaigns, and it wouldn't be enough to to solve this problem. Um given the scale that it exists today. So uh, it's all about collaboration and not really about competition. And we've been privileged to, to learn from you and, and your team. And they've been just an enormous resource in the community. So thanks so much, uh, Claire. I hope you'll um, uh, help your network uh, know about this episode. We want more folks to listen to add passion and stir, particularly when we have inspiring leaders like you on. So uh, thanks again for being with us. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir on behalf of the whole team at Share Our Strength and the No Kit Hungry campaign. Uh, my sister, Debbie Shore, Kelly Griffin, our producer, Paul Woodle. Uh, Woody, who's cleaning up that spilled coffee on his control board since he heard about your being one of 108. Claire, um, we're grateful to have all of this support and getting these messages out to our listeners. Uh, and today, uh, special assistance from my own son, Nate Shore, who in my home studio here has helped me with the technology as always. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. I'm Billy Shore. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhall.